Hi, this is Patricia. And this is Christina. And this is What They're Worth, a podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. Welcome to episode 20 of What They're Worth, and I have personally been very excited about this episode for a while. She has, she has. I speak only the truth. (laughs) And we are getting to talk with Annie today, and Annie is a West Coast girl, and she is an artist with an adorable Instagram, (laughs) and she also (laughs) happens to be a former foster youth, and she is an adoptee. Her story is unique because she was older when she went into foster care. She was 17, and she was adopted at 26, and she has a lot of things she's going to chat with us and share with us today, and I think no one will listen and not learn something. So, Annie, um, tell us a little about yourself and your story. Hey, oh my gosh, so excited to be here. Thank you guys so much. I've been looking forward to this. Um, So I'm going to skim through my story. I grew up in a very abusive home in every sense of the word, physical, emotional, sexual, all of the above. Um, And I honestly, I always say this because I really don't remember when it started, but I know that by the time I was in middle school, it was enough to when I was like a sixth, seventh grader, I was daily thinking about taking my own life. And at that point, I didn't know, I didn't believe in God. Um, and I thought if there was a God, then he obviously hated me because of what he was allowing to happen. And every day, you know, I'd wake up thinking something's going to change and nothing ever changed. And things progressively got worse. In seventh grade, I ended up going to a youth group with a friend because she promised me cute boys and McDonald's instead of going to the actual youth group. <laughs> and, um <laughs> I have a post about that whole story. I'm not going to go into it, but about how I actually like encountered God. But all I can say is that I was not looking for God and he came and he found me and he met me in the darkest place. Um, mm-hmm. And he met me with his love. And that's the one thing I had never experienced was, um, was pure love. And that's how I knew that when I felt him, that's how I knew that this was something that was real because I had never had, I had only felt like counterfeit love. And so in that moment, I knew that God was real. And Mm -hmm. that is truly what has caused me to, and even at that time, caused me to have hope and to hang on because I was so, everything around me was was not what I wanted in life. And I was, you know, being tortured and being told I was hated and being told like that I should just die. And God is what brought me hope and gave me, um, yeah, gave me a chance to know that there was destiny on my life. And so I clung to that. And as I went into high school, things actually progressively got worse. I was banned from going to church maybe like two months after I started going. And um, I would have, you know, like youth leaders that would come pick me up at my high school. I would say I was going to math club. They would come pick me up, drive me to youth group. And I remember like back then they made the joke like, oh, you technically are like the persecuted church because really I was sneaking off to go to church. Like to me, it was a privilege to get to go. And it was the family aspect of a church and of a youth group that I was drawn to. I thought, oh, there's adults who are safe who actually care about me. And that just blew my mind. Um, and um, so 
the long, there's a, it's a long story of how I actually entered into foster care because it, there's no way to tell it without saying that there's, it was just completely divine. You know, I, it was me saying, okay, I'm going to kill myself if nothing happens tomorrow, if nothing miraculous changes in my life. Tomorrow's going to be my last day of school. I'm going to go say goodbye to my friends and my teachers without them knowing. Like, I just knew I wanted one more day to be with the people I cared about. Because at school, I was able to be, you know, this popular, fun girl. Like, no one would have ever guessed. And I made up, like, my family members. I lied to everyone. I, like, pretended. I lived out the life that I wanted at school. So no one would have ever known. So I went to school that day, just a normal day. To me, I was thinking this is my last day. But no one else could tell, you know. Went to my last class, was pulled into the counselor's office. I thought it was about high school or about college since I was a junior and we talked about, you know, applying for school and all that stuff. And so I thought it was one of those appointments and a counselor closed the door and sat me down and said, hey, um, we've gotten multiple reports from people in the community and from some of the teachers here and we can't ignore it anymore. Um, We need to call DHS. And in that moment, I decided that this was something that didn't happen normally. It was the first time I was in shock, honestly, that this conversation was even happening. But I was too scared of the risk of what would happen if I was sent home and my biological parents found out because they always told me that they would kill me. And so I actually lied that day in the office and told her that, oh, you know what, counselor, this is actually about a friend of mine. And I probably have been acting like I've been being abused because I've been taking on her pain. And so I totally on the spot was able to like make this whole narrative up that it wasn't about me. And I said, yeah, like, let's call DHS. That's fine. Um, I'll tell them what's happening to her. And then I'll let her know what her options are. And to me, that was like, this is how I can safely explore the option of possibly getting free but I didn't want to get my hopes up. So I just used a friend, you know, that friend was myself. I was not asking for a friend at that point. Um, and so I was, you know, sent home that night. She said, okay, we, we left a message for DHS. They said that they would call us tomorrow. So she said, okay, when you get back to school tomorrow, come into my office first thing, we'll call them and find out what we can do for your friend. Well, I went home that night and that was the day that, uh, my biological mom tried to, she jumped off a couch onto me, and tried to choke me. And then um, while we were on the ground, she like stabbed me in the eye or like right under my eyeball with um, a metal like earring that was on the ground. And um, she had like a box cutter on her. Like, I don't know what she was trying to do besides hurt me. And um, so she, you know, she told me get out of this house. And I was running, I had a cell phone and I started trying to call one of my friends to say like, I need help. I'm in danger. And I knew my eye was throbbing. And then she tried to run over me. So I ran into someone's yard and it was just, it was just absolute chaos. It was like springtime in Oregon. It was pouring down rain, super windy. All I had was like the clothes on me. I didn't have any money. And so I tried going to someone's house that I knew they weren't home. So I went to the grocery store and I, my plan was to ask somebody to let me borrow um, either 50 cents or borrow their cell phone. And as soon as I walked into the store, one of my good friends was sitting there and Long story short, I tried to lie to her because she said, what's wrong? She's like, she started freaking out because, you know, here I am walking into the store. I didn't know what I'd look like, but I had blood running down my face. I mean, I think for anyone, it would have been a scary sight to see. So she asked me, you know, like, Annie, what happened? And I just told her, oh, I was running and I fell and a log cut me in the eye. 
Um, and she just said, get in my car right now. You can use my phone. And she said, I know that you were abused and that you're being abused. And I wish I would have said something before she like, literally, I didn't have a chance to lie because she just straight up called me out. And this is somebody that I was very, very close with that. I probably was with like four out of seven days of the week who never said anything or asked me anything. But in that moment, she just like let it out. Like I've always thought something was happening. Um, and so that night I was placed into foster care. Um, my youth pastors came to the scene of the crime because we called them and they were allowed to get emergency certified while I lived with them. And so that's who, that was my foster family was my youth pastor and her husband. Um, and I'm really thankful I got to live with people I knew things definitely. Um, I'm sure as you guys know, when you're not, most people aren't just thrown into foster care. They're usually like, you know, as foster parents, you're usually like have this on your heart and you're signing up to do it. And in my case, my foster parents were thrown into it because they were saying yes to like me that was in front of them. And so, you know, like the whole being trauma informed thing comes at a cost when you aren't trauma informed and when you're not, you're not preparing yourself to do this work. It's like this work is what's forcing you to learn about trauma on the spot, I guess. And so, um, there definitely were a lot of complications mm -hmm. that came with that, with not being trauma informed and not having the right, not only the right training, but like not, not digging in deeper to what that looks like to parent somebody with trauma. Um, and even as a kid in hindsight, it brings a lot of awareness to me about how important it is for people who are stepping into this work to be trauma informed. Um, and I aged out when I was, I signed myself out when I was 22, maybe. Um, I stayed in extended foster care for funds for college. And also because I literally like had no idea how I was going to survive if I didn't. And I aged out. I was, you know, heartbroken that I wasn't adopted. I didn't have a family. I was told I was adopted by my foster family and I wasn't. And when given the chance to legally do it, they declined. So that added like an extra layer of rejection and abandonment to me. And yeah, I mean, as an adult, I never thought it was even possible to be adopted. I never thought anyone would want to adopt me. I just, I just told myself that I was going to live this life. I was going to have close friends and adults who would care for me, but I just needed to prepare myself to never have anyone to call mom or dad. I mean, I didn't even call my biological parents that because they told me not to. And so it's just like, it was the biggest heartbreak of my life realizing that I would never experience what it was to be a daughter or to have a mom or dad or and it caused me to not want to even dream about the future like getting married or like whatever any of that stuff it's like that stuff wasn't joyful to me because I realized that my experience was gonna be I had so much rub from me and it's not due to my own choices but um yeah when I was 26 mm -hmm. I was legally adopted by the worship pastors that came into my life the year I, the year after I entered foster care. So I was like, well, I think I was 19. So two years after when I was 19, my church got new worship pastors. And just over time, I swore I would never get close to anyone older than me. And over time, I like my walls just came down. I learned to trust them. It was the first like adults that ever showed care for me. That was like so intentional and so pure. And they were like, they were like, we want to get to know you and for who you are because we care about you. And yeah, they like invested so much time into me. Um, 
and they were just safe. And that's like the biggest word I can think of when it comes to them. And my first initial like interactions with them is these are safe people. And I just knew that they were going to be in it for the long haul. They were so committed to me. You know, like she, she's my mom now, but she taught me to cook. She taught me to clean. She taught me to like do like basic things that no one ever took the time to, to show me. And he was the first man that I ever trusted. The first man I ever like was okay with giving a hug or high five. It's like he taught me that at the age of 19, that I was okay to trust men again. And that's something that was huge. And so, you know, we moved to Tacoma three years ago and I got my last name changed to theirs. So we used to identify as siblings because my little foster brother would say, there are sisters because my dad has like a man bun, like long hair. So he'd say, there are sisters. And so to me, I'm like, I'll take any label. Like, yes, siblings, great. But over time, it definitely became obvious to me, like this is very parental and they're the closest thing I have to parents. Then everyone at our church started to assume they were my parents just because they didn't know my history. So they'd be like, are those your parents? Or they'd say your mom and dad. And like inside, I was so bitter because I would think like, stop calling them that because like, they're obviously never going to, I'm never going to have parents. So like it hurt when people would say that because that's actually all I wanted. But yeah, just over the years, um, this longing and this re this longing to be adopted and to have parents like resurface, even though it's something I always carried, I tried to let that dream die. And the Lord, like over, over time with healing and our relationship, he brought up that desire. And, um, so at 26, I was adopted at our local courthouse that actually used to serve historically as an orphanage. And um, it was like the greatest court experience I've ever had out of all my court experiences. And the awesome part is like it also, or one of the awesome things is it, mm-hmm. it's also like the same courthouse and the same judge that swore me in as a CASA and like just so much, so much God all over it. Um, just his heart for family and that just because you're, I mean, you don't ever age out of wanting a family or wanting to belong. And that's like the number one thing I'd say to everyone. It's like, yeah, I was 26 and I still probably would be the same to the same degree as a little kid was yearned to have a mom and a dad. So something that you said really struck me and I want to talk or dig into it a little bit more. You kind of hinted at it twice, the bitterness of feeling like, so much was robbed from you and taken from you. So, and then you said letting the dream die. And I'm, you know, thinking about some of the older kids that I know and love. And I can, I can really see that, that the energy for the dream is just not there. And even when, you know, adoption workers and stuff are working with older kids, like they'll say stuff like, but they don't want to be adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not interested in adoption. And I'm sure that some people don't have, they just don't have that desire. But I'm really interested in in that, just your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think that that's something, I mean, I also have friends that have aged out of foster care who are adults now. And like off the top of my mind, two of them who are girls, um, actually and the end of their 20s still have this longing to have a family to be a part of a family to be adopted um whether they would admit it or not to like you know it have to be like a family that they know or whatnot I don't know that they would express that but then I also know guys on the other hand who are like no like that's not something I'm interested in and I don't think it has to do with whether being a boy or girl but to me it's just you know interesting because 
I do know people on both ends of the spectrum. And for me, if you would have asked me, I mean, even back then I told everyone around me because people would ask, you know, are you sad you weren't ever adopted? Or because a lot of people just re- thought, you know, if you're in foster care, you're going to get adopted. So they were kind of confused and they would ask me. And I remember, I mean, everyone around me, you could ask, I told them I didn't, but I was completely lying, but I was more so saying it out of protection for myself. Cause I thought to myself, if I ever admit that I want to be adopted mm-hmm. and not just by anyone, I wanted to be adopted by my, you know, my parents, legally my parents now, I just thought if I admitted that out loud and it was never a possibility, like how, first of all, how humiliating. And then second of all, like, I don't know that I would be able to live with this reality of like being rejected again type of a thing. Um, It was more, it was part of it was pride. Like I wouldn't want anyone to find out because that's like, I just didn't think, I really just did not think it was a possibility. And I think that that is something that a lot of people in my case who age out without being adopted and for so many youth who spend way more years than I did in foster care who were adopted, it's almost like the self-protection of like, I don't even want to explore that or I don't even want to find out if it's a possibility because I can't imagine facing that rejection or facing that um, pain again. So why, because a lot of people I hear them say like, well, they're basically our kid. You know, they're not legally adopted, right? But they're they're our child. What do you feel like, why is that so important? Not And not for everybody, but why for you was making it official so important? Like, talk about the impact that that can make. I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because that is something that's very, I totally understand people's hearts when they say that. You know, I'm assuming we're talking about someone who's like aged out and older, not like, you know, currently in care. Um, And I know lots of families who, you know, have taken people in or whatever, but especially when it comes to that, it, cause my, like my parents said to me, even before I was adopted, they said, you know, like we are in this with you for the rest of your life. We will be whoever you want us to be to you, whether it's like your siblings, your friends, whatever, you know, like we are in this. So I could have gone off that basis of trust. Like I've been in a relationship with them for coming up on nine years now. I could look at my track record and know they're not going anywhere. But to me, not only was it that I wanted them to legally be like my mom and my dad, and that's something that they, in their heart, were, had that yearning for. And they saw me like that already. So to me, I kind of was just like, it it meant a lot to be on paper because I don't know, I guess because of my past, I thought this makes it official. And like, this is a step that other people were not willing to take. And it just like, to me, I think it, I think if in all honesty, it was probably like the inside of me wondering, like, am I, am I worth this to somebody like worth them legally saying, like, Mm -hmm. not just verbally, like, this is our kid, this is our daughter or whatever, this is our family. But like, when you do it legally, I mean, in the court, they even say it's as if this is a child who is naturally born to you. They have all the inheritance rights. They have like, whatever, all that stuff. I mean, that's not stuff that is important to me. Like I wasn't thinking about that stuff, but it's basically hearing someone declare like you are my legal child. And that to me, it just means permanence. And when you age out of foster care without being adopted, you have no permanence. And so the legalizing of adult adoption is to me is the same thing as declaring like this is, we're in this forever. That's really interesting. We know someone who had previously, and I think it probably takes the right family 
because like you said, like you didn't want to be adopted by anybody. You didn't want to you didn't want like broad adoption like as a concept. Oh but yeah, when for you sure. <laughs> found those people, then your heart was yearning totally. to officially be their child. And and so I think probably a lot of it yes. has to do with you can't just be like, Oh look, an older kid, let me adopt them. Like older person, you know. Oh yes, no, not at all. I don't I would not have been for that. There's no way that like, I mean, I would imagine in most cases that would be not impossible, but you know, like for me, that, that longing to be adopted didn't even, didn't even like really resurface until like eight years into my relationship with them, because that is what showed me that I could trust them, that I could want this. But it's like, if any random person would have come up to me and been like, we'll adopt you. Like I wasn't just wanting to be adopted. That That wasn't like the end goal. Yeah. So the other thing that sticks out to me is when you were talking about how well you faked it, Mm. that is really interesting. And I don't think we talk about that enough Mm -hmm. because we're usually talking about once it's already discovered, you know? So, I mean, when you, when you think about, and you kind of mentioned your friend, when you think about that, do you feel like people were negligent in kind of ignoring stuff? Like, how do you process how long it took for that to be seen? To me, it still actually blows my mind that anyone even ever noticed because I was so good at faking it. Um, And a lot of that came about because it was just learned because of um, threats. Like my biological mom, she would tell me almost on a weekly basis, like, okay, get in the car. Let's go tell the police what I did. And like, as an outsider, you would think like, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? But it's like, it was a blackmail. It was like a brainwashing technique because I would scream and cry. No, no, no. And it's, I mean, it's what they say about the Stockholm syndrome, like that victims become protectors of their um, abusers. You know, like I totally was like, no, 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 I don't want to tell. Or like the next week she'd be like, okay, let's go tell your teacher what happened. Or like, come on, you know, and it was just like, she was testing me constantly, but then always saying like, if you ever tell anyone, I will kill you. And so it was just like this constant turmoil of brainwashing that I became protective of my abuser, you know? And so I faked it so well that I didn't, I was more worried about and more proactive about covering myself than anyone, even they were, you know? Um, And when I think about my friends and stuff like that, I don't, I don't think that. I don't have any like ill feelings about it because to me, I just, there's no way they would have known. And even to this day, like, you know, it's been so many years since I was in high school. I still have classmates and people who message me who find out about my story and they're like, I'm so sorry. I never helped or whatever. And it's the only response I have is there's no way you would have been able to know. Like you don't need to be sorry. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Like I know that for a fact, if I knew somebody, Mm -hmm. I guess, I don't even think I like had any telltale like warning signs. Like I can't really think of any and like, that's not good, but it's because of so many years of conditioning. I think that I was the first, I was the person who cared most about basically trying to cover the, what was happening at home. How on earth do you go from living basically a fake life to being extremely authentic now Like, I know you did not go from that to this in a moment. Talk to me about the (laughs) in-between from there to here. Yeah, it's pretty wild (laughs) because 
Yeah, even after I aged out, um, there was a lot of. I think one thing I'm pretty, or one thing I'm very passionate about is just about for anyone in the foster care realm. It's so important how we talk about foster care, how we talk about being a child in foster care, how we talk about someone who's aged out, because of how much um, importance and weight it carries, and how an adult frames that can be so impactful to a kid. Because I was basically shamed about it, even from you know, my foster parents. And so I, after aging out, I was, I didn't talk about being in foster care while I was in college. I was technically still in care. Most of my friends were social work majors and I did all I could so that they would never find out I was actually in foster care. Even though a part of me like was cringing. Cause I'm like, Oh, I probably could be of some help to them. Cause they could ask me about my life. I still was like, I just can't do it because I can't run the risk of them not wanting to be my friend because I was told it was shameful. I was told certain people couldn't be friends with me because I was a foster kid, like all this stuff. And it was the voices of others that were speaking these like weights that I carried. And so even after aging out, I denied it. I would never talk about it. I mean, it's not something, unfortunately, it's not something the community talks about very much now more, but back, I mean, still not as much as it needs. It needs to be talked about more. But like I would just run whenever I heard anyone mention those words because I just my last my last like my biggest fear would be like I don't want someone to find out. And so it took healing, years and years of healing. And honestly, I specifically my mom would always say, um, she would always say, like, you know, like just she would speak the opposite. She would speak like truth over it, like the you know, like God's plan and his destiny for my life. And she would say like, you know, the moment she met me when we locked eyes, she like knew that God had so much, put so much in me and like given me a voice to speak and bring like hope to the hopeless and like that he would use his testimony. And it took years and like, yeah, it took years of someone, people really just saying like, this is not something Hmm. that you need to be ashamed of. This is something that like, that God will use for his glory. And in time, I started to see I started to feel more released to be open about it. And I mean, I still remember like the first thing I really wrote about was bigger thing was like when love, what matters asked me to share my story. And I was terrified also because I didn't know what day they're going to release it. But that was the first time I like publicly stated what, what happened to me. And I remember back then like crying, being feeling like I was like naked in front of everyone. And when I look back and read that article now, I'm like, wow, this is so like surface level, but like in that that moment mm-hmm. those like last year was when it happened i remember feeling like it was like the most the scariest thing i ever did but it was from then on that i started to see like okay god if you can i always am saying like god like how can i pay you not pay you back i know that's not what he wants but like what can i do for you because look at what you've done for me like i didn't think i'd live to this age you know and i feel like if this is the least i can do for the lord like declare like testify of his redemption and his restoration and to like and to like bring awareness to other families and other youth hey every person needs a family like add a seat to your table whatever it doesn't have to look a certain way but everyone can make a difference in the life of a vulnerable child or someone who's aged out of foster care or you know if I can be a voice for that like I'm like I am willing to spend like the rest of my life speaking God's truth about it because like the least I can do for what he's done for me What's been something um, really cool or positive that's come about? Because sharing your story seems like it's been, it's kind of new to you. What's been, is there something specific that comes to mind that's just cool or God's shown you through 
sharing his testimony? testimony? I'd say like a huge thing has been just like the community surrounding it on social media. Um, I remember the first day I realized there was like foster care and adoption accounts. And I just was like, Oh my gosh. Like there were so many, I just like free. I remember just feeling, yeah, it's like, I'm not alone, but it's because for so many years I, I put myself in my own place. I didn't want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and just getting to connect with so many people from around the world. One of the things I love, like, you know, being able to be on social media and all that. But one of the things for me, it's like, I want to do something and be involved locally. So like, of course, being a CASA has been so powerful. Um, but another mm-hmm. thing, even just like an everyday thing is like when, you know, my parents and I like go over to people's houses for dinner from church or whatever, just like the, the, one of the coolest things is when people on the other side, they can respond however they want, you know, they can be touched, whatever. But like the number of people who have started asking questions or started sharing their like, oh, I've always had a heart to adopt, to adopt, or like, oh, my wife and I have actually been praying about fostering. Like those kind of conversations, they just give me so much life because it's like, I don't know. I just think that the seed being planted and just like being able and being like equipped to know like, oh, really? Like you've been praying about that or you've been interested? Like here are some practical steps you can take to find out more about fostering or like, you know, it's just so cool getting to connect with people that we personally know and like hearing for the first time, oh, I've always, you know, I've always felt like adoption is something I want to pursue and being able to be like, oh, really? Like here, let's, you know, like ask me anything you want or like here are some resources that can bring you to the next place of figuring it out or whatnot. I think that personal connection locally with people who've been asking questions just through sharing our story has been so, it's been so God. Like it's been so cool. There's a, I forget where I read it and you've probably seen this statistic too, but there's actually a large number of people who report an interest Mm -hmm. in fostering and adoption, but then the percentage that actually does it is like 0.3 or something. It's, when I first saw that statistic, I was like, head scratch, you know, what in the world is the barrier yeah. here? And that's, you know, why our podcast is called What They're Worth, because it's worth it. And we talk about the barriers that people sometimes imagine and the real barriers because they are there and the challenges. But that's why we want to do this, because I think story is the most powerful tool, because you can ignore something when there's not... A, a face to it, yeah. you know, and when you yes. hear that, yes. then you're captivated like, wow, these, your parents did something supernatural, but at the same time, simple. They showed up. Yeah. They poured into you. They spoke truth and positivity. Yes. They didn't yeah. buy you a yacht. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what I mean? They yeah. They didn't write they me didn't a check to be supported the rest of my life. Like. Yeah, they didn't change like their whole lifestyle. Totally. Like, yeah, they they didn't do it for a million kids. Like, you know, I mean, I think we put so many expectations into our minds, or we hear a lot. I'm not ready. You, there's so many. There's just stuff that people come up with, and when you hear a story, and especially that it's not just little kids. You know, it's right. older. Uh, young adults yeah too who need family yeah and I don't think everybody is as receptive as it sounds like you were I think I mean I obviously a huge difference in you is that you met Jesus mm-hmm. and that changes everything Amen. <laughs> Amen. absolutely <laughs> changes everything yeah 
because like you like you said like you love found you and he found you while you were still living that so you had already been kind of primed to receive love a lot of our kids haven't yeah. been primed to receive love um our my most recent foster experience was with an older boy he's 17 now and left had to leave our home and he almost came back but there's this there's a part of him that I think isn't ready to take the love that's being given Mm. and I know he does love us and we do love him but it's that sabotaging yeah and like that I'm gonna mess it up and it's not that we remove love, but we also have to have boundaries yeah. for our own family. And it's really heartbreaking and it's really hard to watch, you know. And I sometimes I get comments from people like, oh, just, you know, you got to let it go. It's not, you know, don't carry that. Like, it's not your responsibility. And... I tend to overburden myself with people's problems. I I do. I have some codependent traits, so I understand why people give me that feedback. But then I also think about stories like yours where, like, it took you eight years to be open. I haven't even been in this kid's life one, mm. you know? And even though he's not living with me, I'm like, he needs my presence, even if he kind of does everything to like make you want to be like, oh boy, you know, uh, come on, what are you doing? Um, so I'm encouraged because I know that it's for the long haul and I have to pray that he encounters love so that he can receive my love. But I can see that he, there's a part of him that wants it, but there's a part of him, and I think, like you, I Probably don't think terrified. he feels worthy. Yeah, or feels yeah, and worthy. Yeah, feels worthy of it, and so he can't really let himself be welcomed in. Totally, um, it's process to learn how to not only receive love but to love yourself when your past, when so many people in your past have told you you're not worth loving, and that's something mm-hmm. that even as an adult learning to be a daughter for the first time there, like mm-hmm. I, I totally, I mean, that self-sabotage thing was a huge part of my life for so many years because that's how I tested if someone was actually going to stay. And it's, I know like on the other side, I can imagine how exhausting that is for someone who's just like, I love you and mm-hmm. I'm not like changing my love for you. So like, stop. But it's like, I, I mean, I think I'm a lot better at that now, but honestly, as an adult, that's something that I even was like, I feel like it was like my condition, one of my survival skills to, I'm going to test if this person's actually in it. Cause if they're not, then I'd rather know now, or I'd rather hurt them first. Cause I don't want to let yeah. them hurt me. And just like, yeah, learning how to be loved and not just loved as mm-hmm. a friend, but like loved as family, love as a daughter, as a son, even as an adult, after experiencing so much trauma, it's, it's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens the day you go to court and your papers are signed. Um, I think everyone, I would think that everyone knows that like just because you're getting adopted or you are adopting a child doesn't, that does not erase any of the trauma. It does not heal any of the hurt. You know, I mean, it, it obviously helps because, you know, there are people on the other side who think, you know, like 
who are so angry about adoption and think it's horrible and thinks that it's adding trauma. But like in my case, as an adult who got to choose it, my argument is, well, now I get to spend the rest of my life with people who for, who will forever walk with me through the hard stuff instead of if I wasn't adopted and I would just be walking through it all alone, you know? And so for me, like God has used adoption to not only teach me that I'm worthy of right. worthy of like he saw that desire in my heart when I didn't think it was possible and he made it come true. And I'm worthy of not only learning of what it's like to be his daughter, but to be a daughter to my parents. But even in like a whole different aspect, it's like being a transracial family. And especially like, I mean, I think this whole time, but especially through this time right now, there's actually been quite a few people who have reached out and who are just like, wow, that's really cool. Like that, because like, we don't think about that. I mean, obviously when I see my parents, like I don't think like, wow, you're a different race than me. Like whatever. Like we do lots of, we eat lots of good Asian food. They do all the things that I would do, you know, like it's not weird at all, but it's like also just through adoption and through being um, different races. I think that it's like getting to explore what God's heart is for family, for the world. That mother Teresa quote, like the world tends to draw the circle of family too small. And I'm like, I wholeheartedly agree with that because just seeing how God forms families is so beautiful. And it's so not what like the norm is, but you know, being in the foster care realm, we see that and we know that. Yeah. And it doesn't take long for kids to like continually or to learn that people don't unconditionally love them and that they are easily replaceable to some people. It doesn't take long. And you had a long, long time mm-hmm. of experiencing that. Sometimes I share the story of my daughter when she was four and we were fostering her um, I remember this moment because I think it was the moment like I really started to understand trauma and um, we were I was brushing her hair in the bathroom and I said to her like we were joking around about something and I said like what am I going to do with you and her initial response was she said she was four I don't know maybe you'll send me to another family and I was just like she was four <laughs> And so, wow. and she hadn't even been in foster care her whole wow. life. It was maybe a year and a half, two years at that point. And it was just so, like, she just said wow. it like she said, I don't know. Like, it was just so matter of fact. It didn't even have oh emotion. Gosh, yeah. Like, it didn't seem to me like I had any emotion attached. It was just like, it would just send me to another family. And I, in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh. It was so, wow. I, I will never forget that moment. Because in that moment, I realized, mm-hmm. doesn't matter what age, when you experience that loss, and as far as we know, it wasn't anything like physical or, but it was still a bunch of loss she had experienced. And in her four-year-old mind, she was very easily replaceable or sent away. Yeah. So I just think even two years of hearing it, and then in your case, over and over and over and yeah. over and over again, for how long, of course, it's going to be a process. I mean, it does, like you said, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a magical thing. <laughs> it's not a magical thing for sure. Yeah. No. And you touched on that a little bit, like people need to be trauma informed. Mm-hmm. What would that have looked like for you? Cause I know it can look different depending on the kid In what way did you see the trauma manifest for you. And what do you think your parents or anybody, anybody that was around you, like what would it have looked like for them to respond in an informed way to that? So my, um, my foster parents are not my adoptive parents, but I think 
I think you guys know that. But a lot of people, I just want to say that because a lot of people do get that confused. They think that I was adopted by my foster parents and I wasn't. So with my foster parents, I think that one of the biggest ways that trauma manifested for teenage Annie, who had only experienced abuse, like for most of her life was emotionally a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone even just raising their voice a little bit, not even angry, just like, Hey, can you pick that up? Something elevated voice automatic. I would start crying because to me, I thought here comes, I mean, almost everything that happened that would seem pretty normal to me, it would always be tied to a punishment. So it was this constant fear. Um, and then when the fear happened, whenever I did get emotional, mm-hmm. it was very difficult for my foster parents. I mean, in I do want to like obviously give them cre- like I'm really thankful I got to stay with people I knew. I'm super super thankful for that. So this isn't me bashing on them. This is just me being real about like the reality of trauma and if when you're not informed um, and how it can cause damage. Because when I would cry, my foster mom was so overwhelmed by that, and sh- I think she took it personally and thought it was something she did or she was trying to fix it. I just have so many memories of her saying like, "Okay, well if you're just gonna cry about it, then never mind. We won't talk about this ever again, or I won't ever say that ever again." And the thing is, like, her intention was because she knew I came from so much pain, she never wanted to cause me pain. But then that left me with four years of basically I could do whatever I want. And I was never corrected, never challenged. Um, I basically got to do whatever I want. I mean, I I didn't, like, do bad things. But in the ways that, like, a caring and, like, a, you know, a caring Mm. parent would have to challenge your kid, would have to point them to the right things, would have to, like, help guide them um, because of their their fear of hurting me. I had none of that, no constructive like criticism, nothing. And so it left me, I think, very far behind because as an adult now, it's like I'm still trying to unlearn a lot mm. of the things that I learned because I learned, oh, if I get emotional about this, then I don't have to ever talk about it. And so it was almost like manipulation and control that I learned like unconsciously. Like I just was like, oh yeah, I like, oh, this skirt, <laughs> like, I just one incident, like someone, one of my youth leaders thought my skirt was too short. And I remember being really offended by it. And I was like crying. But then whenever I was being corrected, I was just so, or whenever I was being confronted about it, I was crying about it. And then them saying like, never mind, since all you didn't do is cry, we'll never talk it. We'll never talk about your clothes again. And I remember in that moment being like, oh, so that means that I can wear whatever I want because I cried about this. And it just like, it just became, it also like in that way, I think immature me was like excited like oh if I just get emotional about this then I don't have to face it like this can be something we never have to talk about but the other part of me told me oh I'm not I'm not worth talking to about this because I'm just apparently I'm just emotional about everything and that's all I do I'm just a burden because all I'm gonna do is cry about everything and that's who I am and I'm too much now and so to me it's like of course when you're trauma-informed like whether that's listening to podcasts, it could be as simple as like watching YouTube videos, um, you know, like Karen Purvis, like her school, her teaching, like all that stuff. I mean, there's so many resources out there that I think obviously would have brought a lot of understanding to them. I mean, of course, I'm not saying any parent is perfect. Even being trauma informed, you're not going to be perfect, but at least knowing what to expect and how to like walk through it and not take everything personally. Cause I think that is the biggest thing that caused all this corruption in the home was because every one of my trauma responses suddenly became personal and they blamed themselves. But then that like causes disconnect because it's like they were afraid to be them. And then I was afraid to be me, but really I needed someone to sit down with me and say, yeah, let's talk about like what happened to you. Oh, if there's moments that you're crying because you feel like your whole world was stripped away, like, yeah, we'll cry with you because that is, even though 
the 17 years of life I had before them, uh, most of those years were horrific, but it was still at the end of the day, it's still a 17 year old who literally in one moment in one hour had everything taken from her. And I needed people who were, I needed foster parents who knew that, who knew best and weren't just trying to cater to Mm -hmm. what I wanted because there was a lot of things that I wanted or I thought were best for myself that in hindsight, because they were like, well, this is what Annie wants in hindsight caused so much damage to me. I really wish they would have been like, we are the parents. We are the foster parents. We know what's best for you. Even if you can't see it right now, I needed somebody to do that. And somebody who was not afraid to say like, you know, you're 17 and you think that this might be healthy for you, but this is not okay. I I needed boundaries. I needed to be taught all that. I think that I I really relate because I'm I'm only 28 and, you know, I was parenting a 16-year-old, 17, you know. I don't have the life experience of having done that. I mean, I'm fully admitting I probably made lots of mistakes. But I I remember feeling a tension of like, okay, this kid is about to be 17. But emotionally and not having had guidance, support, you can't necessarily treat them the same as somebody who did have that the prior 17 years. And you are, you're afraid to push too much because like they're unstable, you know, and it's, it's really hard, you know, it's really hard because you're like, I don't want to baby them. You know, I don't want to overdo it. But then at the same time, you can see the (laughs) lack of, you know, I mean the dysfunction and, and how they operate, but I'm, it's really good to hear you say that. And if I could go back and do it again, I would honestly start off more structured than I did um, because it's a lot easier to loosen it once you get to know them. And I don't mean like military style, but it's a lot harder <laughs> if you let certain things occur and then you're trying to correct it. You don't have truth. You don't have history. Oh, yeah. You know, you're like, who the heck are you? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're trying to explain why you have to change things. So if I could go back and, you know, for anybody that's listening that is thinking about parenting older kids, I think that's really important. As much as we might feel weird about that, it's what they need. And yeah. it's so yes, much easier, absolutely. you know, if, if they can handle that and they're responsible, then you can always lessen whatever it is, but uh, take, learn from my mistakes. It's way harder <laughs> to, to afterwards to try. And, you know, there were some things that I just didn't know what the expectations should be. I was not prepared, you know, for my situation. I was a foster parent, but I wasn't really planning on, we were doing emergency placements and he turned into a longer placement. So I wasn't really when you think somebody's just staying for a weekend, it's a little bit different. Like you don't interact exactly the same. I give myself grace for that because totally. I didn't know. Yeah. But going back, I'm like, okay, you know, yes. this is really, especially with grace. older ones, <laughs> you, but you can't have the same expectations, you know, as somebody else. You just can't because the, they haven't had the same experiences. 
and a lot of the foundations that it takes to Mm -hmm. drive a car, you know, or be out past a certain time. I'm like, no, you know, (laughs) I'm sorry. You, I don't know who these people are. I don't know where you're going. Like you've got to be home. The TV's turning off. Like you need boundaries, (laughs) but it is very, uh, it's difficult, but I do think that it's, worth it and necessary. So I appreciate you sharing that piece because I think that's valid. So besides being trauma-informed, Annie, like what else are you really passionate about sharing with foster parents, whether it's older foster youth or younger? What is something that's really on your heart or just something you feel like needs to be said? Um, I would for sure say, I mean, I touched a little bit on it, but you know, the way we talk about foster care, the way we frame it, um, especially Mm -hmm. as people who love God and are loved by God. You know, I don't, I never have thought about my story this way. I never will think, I never think, Oh God, like destined for me to end up in foster care, but seeing how God was in every single detail with me, how he was at every court case at every meeting with my caseworker, he was there, you know, in all of it. And knowing that God is not removed from you when you're in foster care, um, your, the value or the destiny in your life is not stripped away from you because you're a foster kid. Um, and on the flip side, as foster parents, realizing that and speaking that truth over the kids in your home is like, you know, I always read that quote that says one day a page from your story will be a page in someone else's survival guide, but it's so true. And getting to like walk that out and see how many people, um, yeah, I'm just shocked by the number of people who are even like touched or moved or like feel like they learned something from my story because to me, I'm like, I'm just so thankful that God has been weaving this tapestry, but it's also just, I don't know, it gives me such a burden to hope and pray that like every other foster youth and foster parent realizes that their story has so much value and like in the, and there's so many moments like that you can't see it and you just think like this is the worst and it's valid to be feeling those hard things, but it's hold on and know that God will use you. He will use your story and that like you matter to him and that this too will touch somebody else's life. Mm. Um, and just even just, uh, something that I would say to like foster and adoptive parents is like your yes, like will resound and touch generations upon generations. Maybe you fostered like one kid for like a week or like maybe you've adopted a child or maybe, you know, like what, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's just like the fact that you're willing to say yes to loving a vulnerable child or an adult is it's lasts more than just the moment of their lives. Um, I believe that it echoes like into eternity. And I, you know, it's just like, it's like the manifest love of God on earth is like loving the person in front of you. And every seed that you sow is like will be planted Mm. and nothing goes to waste when it comes to love. And that's what I always think about. Like you so hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, my parents, they didn't, you know, they could have thought like, if she has provision for the rest of her life, she'll be good. So let's just write her a check. But I could have cared less about that. Like I would have wanted what they did, which is people who are dedicating to walk through my life with me as my mom and my dad. And so what we can all do doesn't look the same and it doesn't have to look the same and it shouldn't look the same, but it's your willingness to say yes in the realm of foster care adoption is so needed regardless of what it looks like. Like everyone can do something. And I think that's like the thing I'll always say is everyone can play a part. And you right now, you're a CASA. Can you tell people what that is? Because I, I didn't really know until you. Because I don't know if we... Is it everywhere or is that just called Is it that? like guardian at litem here? 
Is that, is that, is that so that is here. It's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of confusing, I guess, just because I'm not sure like what all States it's in, but like in my state, we have CASAs and GALs, which is guardian items. And usually GALs are um, paid positions. So in my state or my County specifically, I'm a CASA, a court appointed special advocate. And the program here actually got renamed. So now it's just court appointed advocate. Um, but uh-huh. there is a national website. Yeah, just a cow. <laughs> and it's a volunteer position. And basically, you are what I am as an information gatherer for the child that I was assigned. I talked to her biological mom. Dad's not in the picture, so I don't talk to him. I talked to her placement provider. I talked to her doctor, to her school, to anywhere that she's involved, I talk to them. Anywhere that her mom's involved, I talk to them. I, I mean, yeah, the best way to say it is that information gatherer. I'm involved. I am aware of what's going on. I am the eyes and the ears for this child because she has the best caseworker in the world. Like, she has a caseworker I wish I would have had. But that caseworker also has a lot of children on her load. So I am the one who is there constantly for when the caseworker can't be. And so I help write reports. Like we go to court once every three or four months and I write a report giving my overview of what I've seen, what I think that would benefit the child, all this stuff. And the CASA's report is the first report that the judge reads because it's the mm-hmm. only one that's not biased because I'm not employed by the state. Mm-hmm. I can literally say what I could. I mean, I'm not going to say this, but I could literally say like this four-year-old needs three Ferraris. Like I could literally say whatever I want and they would read it where like, a caseworker can't necessarily say whatever they want because they are employed by the state. And so because I'm non-biased, I can advocate for whatever she needs and they take that very seriously. But it's been an incredible way to be involved directly and locally with a foster child. And it only costs me about five hours a month, if that. It depends on the month, but there's some months it's even less, some months it's more, but it's worth it. And it's something that I can do as like, a full-time working young adult who will have my own place soon, but doesn't yet, you know, because I do want to step into the world of fostering once I'm able to, but like, that's something that I was able to do right now. And it has been such an incredible experience. I don't know. I'll have to look into it because I've been hearing more as we've been more involved in the foster care and adoption realm mm-hmm. on Instagram, probably you more than me, cause you do more of the social media, but hearing that term, like Tina said that term, I think the other mm-hmm. day on her story, yeah. And I was like, oh, what is that? But that is Costa, so yeah. cool. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. I don't know if our guardian ad items are paid. I think they're volunteers. I thought it was volunteer in our state. Maybe it's like the equivalent. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I know it's it's confusing for me because I think it is different in most states. So <laughs> but I think the point being the point being is that there is a yes you can say. Mm-hmm. I think there's too many people who say it's on their heart and they're doing diddly. So not saying everybody can do the same thing or should do the same thing, but there's probably a yes that you can make. If it's on your heart, then please don't do nothing Mm because life is short. Take some, even a baby step. Um, You know, we've talked about that on plenty of our episodes about different things that people can do. Um, but there's so many things and there continues to be new things that people are coming up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you probably get addicted because that's what tends to happen. Mm-hmm. Once you get in it, it's like, how can you ignore it? Um, because it's, really a, crisis. it's a crisis. 
And I really appreciate your like challenge just to speak over, um, speak the truth over the children. I think that's something I need to, not that I don't feel those things or express those things to other people, but sometimes you don't think about. She expresses them all the time. But sometimes you don't express those things to like the actual kids who come into your house. Like we do a lot of short-term placements, even just sitting down with the kids before they leave and telling them those things. God has promises for you. He has a plan for your life, even in this moment when it doesn't feel like it, like you can rest through, you know, just making it a habit making it a habit for when kids come in my house, no matter how mm. long they're here to before they leave my house to express that truth to them. I think is a good, yeah, yeah kind so of good. spurred that in me. So I appreciate that because mm-hmm. I pray those things and I talk about those things with other adults, but I don't always talk about them with the actual kids who are in my house. So I think that's, I've that's always, so good. when I've, I haven't had a ton, but in the couple kids that I had, I would, because they were only for a few nights, I'd spend time talking to them before bed and do a teenage tuck-in, <laughs> you know, and then just ask them if they were okay with me praying over them. Mm-hmm. And I think on almost every occasion, the kid cried. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they never had anybody do yeah. that, but just something that simple, you know, you don't know what impact mm-hmm. and what care that signals because in a lot of people, they think teenagers, oh, they don't need that, right. you know, oh, good night. And there's no, wow. you know, some, some kids never yeah. had that. They right. never had somebody walk them to bed or make sure they're mm-hmm. okay. And just, you know, I think we, when we think older kids, we think of all the like, oh, driving and like SATs and yes, those things are there and they are stressful, I attest. But there's also the simple things that they still need. Mm -hmm. And there's the work that older kids, like they have their challenges, but they also, you don't have to like watch them 24-7 and like they know how to use a microwave. And like (laughs) there are things there. When I think about having younger kids, because I haven't yet, I get a little stressed out because I'm like, oh boy, I'll have to bring them everywhere. (laughs) Like I can walk away, you know, <laughs> if I need to. Uh, so there's pros and cons to everything. Yeah. Well, Annie, did we cover everything or did you have anything else you wanted to share today? I think we covered a lot and I'm so Ooh. thankful that you guys created a space for this open dialogue um, and to talk about like the real, real things. Like I really appreciate your platform and just like the transparency that you guys bring is so needed. Well, we Thank love you. Here. Where can people find you on Instagram? Because I know people are going to want to find you. <laughs> um, my name on there is Annie Merrick Barta. We'll t- we'll put it in the description. I'm like, do you want me to spell it? Or yeah, that'd be we'll awesome. <laughs> and we'll probably be sharing you. Well, we will share you on our stories. Though we have so many listeners, but not enough followers. So hopefully we come on people. I don't know. Like maybe they don't have Instagram. I don't know. Like we have lots of (laughs) listeners. And then I'm like, where are where are you on Instagram? We have Facebook too, y'all. Yes, this is true. But we will link you in the show notes since more people are going there. Yeah. And hopefully someday we'll be able to maybe bring you on again and just follow you a little bit and Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah. Or meet you in person because yes, we would love to meet you. I love that. Oh, yeah. Country. I'd love that even more. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Me too. And just thank you for being so vulnerable, too. Um, that's why our platform is the way it is because people get on here and yep. they talk about the tough and heavy things along with the good things. And just it's an encouragement to people that, yes, 
it's hard and there are obstacles along the way and it doesn't always like Patricia says a lot like tie up in this nice bow and boom <laughs> it's done you're you're transformed um but it it does give people hope to see people are self-reflecting and working through the things and finding community and just knowing there are other people out there experiencing similar things. So thank you for your willingness to come on and I hope we can chat again sometime. Yes. Thank you. If you like today's episode,